Father, we are grateful to be in this place tonight. We're grateful for all the precious people that have taken time this Wednesday evening, kind of a middle of the week time to refresh and uh, reinvigorate our spirit. And, and Lord, there's so much that comes at us during the week, the work week, the freeways, the, the demands at home, all the things that come our way, the stresses and strains of life. And Lord, this is a chance just to kind of take a deep breath and just let some of those things fall to the wayside in the beauty of your presence. And thank you that corporate worship is such a beautiful thing. Thank you that you inhabit the praises of your people. And thank you that as we draw near to you, you draw near to us. You're the God that loves us, a God that pursues your people. More than that, you're a God who lives inside of us. And thank you that we have that great hope, Jesus Christ in us, the hope of glory. As we turn now to Genesis 16 and look at Abram and Sarai and this story of Hagar and Ishmael, we come with expectation, Lord, because your word is alive, and we just pray that whatever you want us to hear tonight, you'll give us ears to hear what you would want to say to your people tonight. And those who may be checking out Christianity or maybe coming back after a long hiatus, I pray that you'd bless them and meet them here tonight. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. The God who sees Genesis 16, the chapter opens, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that Genesis 16 is somewhat of a hiccup, once again, in the story of Abram's faith and Sarai's faith. And Abram is certainly a man that is taking us on a journey of faith, and we're, we're supposed to follow in his footsteps, but not all of his footsteps, <laughs> Because he certainly had some hiccups, and this chapter could be called uh, trying to take a shortcut in faith. Whenever you try to take shortcuts, you know what often happens. Sometimes shortcuts can be good, but oftentimes they turn out not to be so good, and you end up lost and confused and in the wrong place. And shortcut is an interesting word because this particular chapter tonight is about a cutting consequence that's going to happen in the life of Sarai and Abram. And this is a journey that I think we all can say as we take the, the walk of faith and the journey of faith, no walk of faith is walked with perfect feet. So let's get that out of the way. We are all in process. Faith is a journey. And when we talk about faith in the Bible, you place your faith in Christ, and that's how you get saved. You're saved by grace through faith. But then the life after that initial conversion is still a life of faith. And faith is a word of trust. It's putting confidence and trust in God in the face of our fears, in the face of the unknown future. And it's, it's really reliance upon God in the essence of faith is reliance upon God in everyday life. It's learning to trust him more and more through the good times and the bad times, through the ups and the downs of life. This is going to be one of those downs, but there's many things that we can learn from this chapter. Sarai uh, was unable to have children, and in, in Genesis 15, Abram was wondering about this. They were getting older, and Abram said, I have no heir. I only have Eleazar of Damascus, and he's a foreigner. He's born in my house. Is he going to be my heir? And God said, no, he's not going to be your heir. There's going to be an heir that comes from your own body. And God took Abram outside and he showed him the stars of the sky. And he said, if you could count these stars, uh, your descendants will be even more than these. And Abram had an incredible moment with God, what we would call a theophany, where God showed up in this fiery type of furnace. 
And God passed through these animal pieces. This is last Wednesday we were together. And God cut an unconditional covenant. Abram did not pass through the animal pieces. Only God did. And God was saying, if I don't keep this covenant, in essence, this is what it meant historically in the ancient times, may happen to me what happened to these animals. And they were cut in half and lined up. And God made an unconditional promise, a blood covenant, if you will, wholly dependent upon him and his faithfulness. And Abram had that promise. He had the promise that he he would have an innumerable amount of descendants. And yet, when he looked at the natural, when he looked at the reality of life, he saw no offspring. There was still no child. And so he was still wondering. And some, some of us have a wondering faith. You know, oftentimes we say, I have faith, but I still wonder about how it's going to work out. What are the mechanics? How is this going to work? We want answers. And time passed. Some 10 years went by. You know, sometimes it's hard to wait 10 minutes for a promise. I know it's hard to wait 10 minutes for a burrito in the fast food line, that's for sure. Especially with that clock there. So we get impatient and We're supposed to be patient. We're supposed to patiently wait for the promises. We know that that patience is a fruit of the Spirit. We know that faith does take patience, but it's hard. We're human. So Sarai said to Abram, now behold, verse 2, the Lord has prevented me, and this was the the belief, and this does go back to Genesis 4.1, that the opening and closing of the womb was dependent on God. God The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. So Sarai may have a little anger here. She can't have kids. And this fell to the woman. Infertility in the ancient world, fair or not fair, and this would be unfair, fell on the woman. And the woman was blamed for the infertility of the family and that she could not provide an heir to her husband. And a son or multiple sons was a prize in the ancient world. They helped you take care of property and you passed on your name in this way. And so for a woman not to be able to give a son to her husband was a tragedy and no less than a tragedy. And it would invite ridicule and scorn. And in fact, they say in the ancient world that it was grounds for divorce. If your wife could not bury you a son, you could legally divorce her in that culture. And so she, you know, she sees this as the hand of God preventing her from bearing children. So she makes a suggestion. She says, please go into my maid. That's her servant. Perhaps I shall obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, we know as husbands that it's often quite wise to listen to our wives. But in this occasion, this was a bad career move from Abram. So there's times to listen to your wife, but Abram was the leader. Abram had been called by God. God had been speaking to Abram. And this particular suggestion that Sarai has is a suggestion out of desperation. We can understand it. And in the ancient world, this was totally acceptable. Now in modern times, you know, people will try to use science to help them maybe have children if there's some infertility But in the ancient world, there was no such thing. So what became acceptable in the ancient world is that you could bring another woman, she would become a second wife, and she would be able to bear children to the family. In fact, they had an ancient ceremony, and when the woman was about to give birth, the surrogate mom, if you will, the other mother who could not have children, would undress, lay next to her. When the child was born, they would take the newborn child and lay it on the mom who could not have children. This was an ancient practice. 
perfectly acceptable. Nobody in the community would mock Abram or give him a hard time for choosing this option. In fact, I would imagine that Sarai and Abram had many conversations on many nights about God's promise and how it would happen and how long should they wait. And did God expect them to do something? You know, we get confused as Christians sometimes because we know we're on a faith journey and we know there's things that we have to do as Christians to act out our faith. You know, we've heard the old saying that God does not steer a parked car. We should be moving. We should be active in our faith. And sometimes it's hard for us to know when we're sitting around being lazy and not doing what we're supposed to do, and when we should be waiting on God, and how do you work all that out? And that's one of the tougher questions in the Christian life. And I don't have all the answers for you. So you just have to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and put the situation before God and use the scriptures and uh, prayer and counsel of other godly believers in your life. But she is desperate, and so she proposes this acceptable thing that um, this would occur through her maid or her servant, Hagar. Hagar is not a focal point so far in the whole book of Genesis. And she's kind of on the lower rung. She's a person that's not the center of the story. She's a person that's uh, maybe not in the light. You know, we, we read Genesis and we see, you know, Adam and Eve and we see Cain and Abel and we see Enoch and Noah and Abram and Sarai, but Hagar... I mean, maybe you feel like a Hagar. Maybe you feel like I'm somebody that's never quite up front or I'm never really even noticed. I'm kind of the, I'm kind of the footnote on the page. That's, I'm sure, how Hagar felt. She was a servant in this household. She probably had been acquired when Abram went down to Egypt in the famine and he had acquired much cattle and uh, animals and servants and brought into the household. And I'm sure it wasn't, you know, the thrill of her life to be a servant to somebody else and someone of another uh, line or another race. She was from the line of Ham. And so one writer says, does he, God, care about the people who are, who are not normally at the center of the story? What about people who have no stature in the world's eyes and are basically unknown? Does God love them too and care about their hurts and needs? What about Hagar's rights? What about her needs? What about her dreams? Is she just expected to submit to this culturally acceptable option? Is she literally a very disgruntled option B? You know, it's kind of like when you get a phone call from somebody and they invite you to the game and then you found out that they called 10 other people before they called you. It's like, well, gee, it's great that you gave me this invitation, but <laughs> apparently I was not high on your list. You called me out of desperation to get rid of a ticket. You know, it's kind of that. Thing. That's the Hagar complex, if you will. And maybe some of you are in that boat. You know, you're not necessarily upfront or notice that much. And, and so here she is. And here is Abram. You know, he's brought her into the household. She's Sarai's maid. But, um, you know, Abram, I'm sure, is, has been showing her the ways of Yahweh, what he's learning. But, you know, the clock is ticking, and this couple's feeling pressure. At this point, uh, from what we can put together in the scripture, uh, Abram is 85 and Sarai is 75. And so, you know, time is going by and it's going by rather quickly. And so this is uh, an all too common experience for believers. Failing to see God work as soon as we think he should, we begin to feel that he is waiting for us to do our part before he will do his. 
We then devised various plans, I'm reading from one writer, and programs to get it done, only to find it is all in vain. And in fact, we've probably done more harm than we've done good. We start to imbibe or embrace the old sayings like, God helps those who help themselves. Isn't that in the Bible? <laughs> no, that's not in the Bible. But, but we hear people talk about that. And, and so maybe Abram and Sarah are at this point where desperation is happening and pain is driving a lot of it. In fact, I would tell you guys, when we let a decision be driven by pain or shame or desperation, we normally get ourselves in trouble. Would you not agree? We often make rash, poor decisions because we're feeling pressure and we're feeling like we got to get this done or something needs to happen. And so I think Sarai may have done something like this. She may have said, well, I'm the one making the sacrifice here for my husband. Maybe she rationalized it. Maybe she had a list of rationalizations. Maybe she made the list of pros and cons, as some of us are famous of doing. Should I do this? Well, here's the pros, here's the cons. Maybe she did that. But deep down, I think she was troubled by this whole situation. And after Abram had lived 10 years, verse 3, in the land of Canaan, that's the land of promise, Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. Uh, R. Kent Hughes says there is an, uh, also an ironic reversal here. Down in Egypt, trustless Abram had given Sarai over to the Egyptian pharaoh. Now in Canaan, untrusting Sarai gave Abram over to her Egyptian servant. Abram's fiasco in Egypt was costly indeed, more costly than one might conclude on the surface. When he went down to Egypt, a type of the world, in the midst of a famine because he didn't trust in God, he picked up some baggage along the way and it continued to haunt him in his later years. When we make decisions like that, oftentimes they catch up to us in different ways and unexpected ways. And so Abram, you know, Sarai made this suggestion. She said, take my maid, she'll be your wife. And Abram said, okay, honey, <laughs> whatever you say. <laughs> I don't know if there was a quick ceremony or what occurred, but all of a sudden, you know, he's accepted this option. Now, some of you may be thinking, but I've read my Bible, and from what I understand, God's been making this promise, and he says the heir is going to come from Abram's body, but he hasn't been specific about the woman. And maybe, you know, if you're Abram, you're thinking, well, hey, who knows? This could be the way. But Abram knew better. Here's why. Because from this line of an Egyptian is the line of Ham. And the, the line of the Messiah would come from the line of uh, Shem, which comes from Eber. Uh, Abram's known as a Hebrew. And in fact, there's something that I want you to see, and it's in Genesis chapter 9. Just flip back there for a second. Genesis 9. Remember when Noah gets drunk in the tent? Uh, Genesis 9. And uh, look at verse uh, 22. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, told his brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it upon their shoulders, walked backward, and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. As the story unfolds, what happens is Noah realizes what happened and he pronounces a curse on Canaan. 
And it's, it's Ham's descendants, basically, is what's happening. And so Abram, here's my point, has to know, if you read up through 26, you'll see the curse on that line, that it can't, this promise cannot be coming. This is my own view. I don't think Abram believes fully in his heart that the promise can come through an Egyptian maidservant. I think he knows that the line's going to come through Shem. But here's what happens, and you're going to see many times in your Bible, if you turn back to chapter 16, that there are polygamous relationships that are laid before us. Uh, but one thing you need to know as well is that this was not God's will. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, singular, and the two shall become one flesh. From the beginning, monogamous heterosexual marriage was always God's will. When people uh, brought another wife in, sometimes it was for the purpose of bringing an heir. But whenever this happened, it, I think in every case that I can recall, it ends very badly. It's just a bad, bad decision. And so there's unpleasant and even shattering consequences. And so he, Abram, went into Hagar. They were intimate and she conceived, and it would seem rather quickly, 16.4. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress, which could be translated her lady or her queen, was despised in her sight. So all of a sudden, can you imagine being Sarah? You have given your husband to another woman for what you may be trying to reconcile as noble purposes. He's been intimate with her. He's been in the arms of another woman. Now your intimacy in your marriage has been compromised. Something that's only supposed to be between a husband and a wife to be shared in the context of marriage has now been compromised and we could even say soiled. And now she's pregnant, but now she despises Sarai. It could be that she's saying, well, Sarai, you're the problem, not Abram. But it could be that this whole situation has just made Hagar bitter and Hagar has decided to strut around the ball that's out in front of her. Can you imagine? These two women in a tent, you know, trying to live together, and your husband's gotten another woman pregnant, which you suggested, by the way, and now she's walking around, and she hates you now. And I'm sure you're not too happy with her, and she's probably sticking her belly out a little farther as she walks through the kitchen. Uh-huh. And Sarai's got to be fuming. I mean, the medley of emotions that this woman must be feeling from jealousy to bitterness to rage, uh, I'm sure was all coalescing in her emotion and in her mind. She probably did one of these things. Have you ever done this? Boy, it sounded like a good idea at the time. You know, we do that a lot of times when we make decisions in life. We, we kind of measure things and we, we, we think of the downside and when, then we say, but you know, this is, this is going to be good. It'll be all right. And then reality sets in. And it's not such a great idea after all. And we didn't think about all the potential consequences and details that we should have factored in because we're dealing with humans here. Everybody know what I'm saying? Humans just tend to get themselves in trouble. And Sarai said to Abram in a classic line in the Bible, may the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. Translation, Abram, 
It's all your fault. Now, we've all been there before, and I would say that Sarai has a point because Abram is the leader, and this is where we don't talk much about the head of the household on the flip side. You know, we talk about, you know, the man is the head of the woman and submission, and people get their feathers ruffled, but men become culpable to God when they hearken unto other voices, even the voice of their wife, and lead the family in the wrong direction. Gentlemen, it's a pretty big, significant calling, don't you think? That God's going to hold us responsible, even if we could say, but it was the woman. He could say this to his wife. It was the woman you gave me. This sounds like Genesis 3, doesn't it? When, <laughs> when Adam said to God, it's the woman you gave me. And the woman says, it's the serpent. And the serpent said, no leg to stand on. You guys know the joke, right? This is the, the classic blame shift, but the, the Hebrew word for wrong, may the wrong done uh, me be upon you, is the Hebrew word could be translated the violence done to me. She feels devastated, ravaged. I was reading a study note in my Nelson New King James study Bible, and it's, it said that this is probably one example in the Old Testament where this is the closest to swearing you can get in the Bible. She's basically pronouncing a curse on her husband. May the wrong done to me be upon you, she says to her husband. This is not happy times in the tent of Abram. It's not a good thing. Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering, NIV. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. You want to talk about tension in the tent? This is what birthed an early reality show back in the time of Abram. It's called Tension in the Tent. <laughs> what? <laughs> sure, certainly had a possibility to be a reality show, huh? And so here's this incredible account. Moses wrote the account as a parallel to the fall in the garden. One writer says, Sarai's action was parallel to that of Eve. Here, Abram listened to his wife, verse 2, just as Adam listened to his wife, Genesis 3. I think it's verse 7. Here, here, Sarai took Hagar, just as Eve took the fruit. Here, Sarai gave Hagar to her husband, just as Eve gave the fruit to her husband. And in both cases, the man willingly and knowingly sunk his teeth in, partook of the fruit. And it was a bad, bad mistake. It caused devastation to the whole human race in Genesis 3, and it caused devastation to the whole tent of Abram right here. So the situation is growing worse with each passing day, and I'm sure it became unbearable for Sarai. One thing that happens when we stop trusting God, no matter how reasonable our lack of trust seems, is that we tend to blame, blame God, as we see in verse 2 that Sarai did, or other people, as we see in the following verses, for our difficulties. We detect a belligerent note as if Sarai is saying, I know we should trust God for a solution, but God has made things too difficult for me to do that now. Are you there? Are you a person who says, oh, God, you've just made it too difficult, and that's your justification for doing things maybe out of God's order? You know, it, it, we turn it around, we put it back on God 
And you might be asking tonight, well, then what, why would God make them wait so long? Well, one reason is because God wanted it to be unmistakable that the child of promise, Isaac or Isaac, his name means laughter. He wanted it to be undeniable that it was a miracle. And God will sometimes do that. He'll make us wait so that the credit and the glory can only go to God alone. And that's a tough place to be in. And Abram said to Sarai, behold, your maid is in your power. Uh, I don't know how long this went on, but uh, the complaints kept coming to Abram. And Sarai was angry and bitter and mad. And Abram did what many men do in passive response. He said, do to her what is good in your sight. Okay, honey, whatever you decide. Now, technically, I guess he could do this because she, Hagar, was technically the servant of Sarai. And so Sarai, in this ancient context uh, where there was servitude, she was technically under the power of Sarai, and Sarai could do what she wanted. And that put Hagar in a pretty tough spot. And so Abram says, you decide. So Sarai, notice this is not good. What Hagar does is not uh, great, and what Sarai does is not great, although very human. Sarai treated her harshly. If you have an NIV, it says, verse 6, Sarai mistreated Hagar. This word mistreated is used later of what the Egyptian taskmasters did to the Israelites as they were slaves in Egypt. She treated her harshly. Harsh words, maybe harsh labor, uh, maybe everything she could throw her way to do extra work and not get any rest. Well, Sarai mistreated her and mistreated her and she, that is Hagar, fled from her presence. Uh, Hagar couldn't take it anymore. And she boogied. She bailed. She left. She said, enough is enough. Listen to this. Proverbs 30, 21 through 23 says, Under three things the earth quakes or trembles. And under four it cannot bear up. Under a slave when he becomes a king. A fool when he's satisfied with food. And listen to this. Proverbs 31, 23 under an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she supplants or displaces her mistress. Under such circumstances, Proverbs 31.23 says, the earth shakes, and that tent was shaking. There, it was a mess. It was a disaster. And there are people inside and outside the church, and we make decisions, and God pours out grace on us, you know, much of the time, but many times our house begins to shake almost like there's an earthquake there because of what's going on in our lives and decision-making, and that's what's happening here. It's not a good scene whatsoever. Uh, don't be deceived. Galatians 6, 7 says, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he's going to reap it. And so, one writer says, Abram and Sarai treated Hagar like an inanimate, unfeeling instrument, a soulless baby machine. But Hagar became proudly pregnant. And because she had succeeded where Sarai had not, she began to look down on her mistress. Hagar, one writer says, enjoys it as a triumph over Sarai. Sarah, uh, haughty looks were cast Sarai's way. Hagar strutted around her profile and Sarai said, oh yeah, let me tell you something. And the household became an ugly, ugly mess until Hagar finally left. Maybe in the middle of the night, threw a thing, few things in a bag, some rations, 
And she headed for home. And for her, home was Egypt. And it was no easy journey. A lot of desert land. And she started to go in that direction. I would say in this story, would you agree that Hagar is probably the most innocent of the three? Would you agree? I mean, she didn't have much of a choice. This was not her dream wedding. This was not her dream way to become pregnant. She was under servitude and she went with the flow and now everybody's mad at her. And of course, she did not conduct herself in a way that was becoming her. We know that. We saw her attitude towards Sarai, but we, we can kind of understand it. And now everything's a mess. This child inside of Hagar belongs to Abram, but she can't take it anymore. So she bails. And all of a sudden she's heading back home, perhaps maybe even back to her gods, the gods of Egypt. And now something miraculous and surprising occurs just when you thought there's no way to clean up this mess. And you may be there tonight. There's no way to fix this. There's no counseling we can do to undo what's been done here. Watch what happens. Now the angel of the Lord, Genesis 16, 7, found her, Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness by the spring on the way to Shur. Now Shur is probably near the border of Canaan and Egypt. So she's heading back home and she's making the trek and the angel of the Lord finds her by a spring of water in the wilderness. Isn't this beautiful? Because God is like water in the wilderness. When we're feeling like we're in a wilderness place and everything is dry, all of a sudden living waters can flow out from God to us, even in a very dry and uh, desperate place in our lives. And that's where the angel of the Lord meets her. And if you've studied your Bible or theology for any amount of time, you know that many, if not most conservative scholars believe the angel of the Lord is Jesus Christ. And there is solid evidence that this indeed is the case. He is the angel of the Lord. And by the way, this is the first mention of the angel of the Lord in the Bible. Right here is the first mention. And you're going to see why uh, most conservative scholars, I, I believe uh, from my understanding, would agree that this is a pre-incarnate, pre-Bethlehem, pre-before-he-was-born appearance of the second person of the Holy Trinity, that is Jesus Christ. And he appears at a spring of water in the wilderness to an Egyptian slave. You know, sometimes when, when I open the sermon, I told you when you're the, the guy that's low on the ladder, the gal that's low on the ladder, and you're not the central part of the story, you might ask the question, does God really care about Hagar's who run off in the night? She's not carrying the son of promise. Uh, this, we know Ishmael's not going to be the line that leads to the Messiah. Does God does God just shoo people off like that? Ah. No, he doesn't. In fact, he goes out of his way to meet Hagar, the Egyptian bondservant, at this lonely well. And he said, look at verse 8. And if you're interested in more study on the angel of the Lord, look at Genesis 22, 11 and 15. Exodus 3, 2, where the angel of the Lord is the voice of the burning bush. You can also look at Numbers 22, 22. Judges 6, 21 and 22, where he appears to Gideon. And later, the angel of the Lord appears to the parents of Samson. And by the way, after that meeting, the parents of Samson look at each other and say, it's a wonder we're not dead. We have seen the Lord or we've seen God. 
So here's the evidence that the angel of the Lord is much more than just an angel. And by the way, angel in Hebrew and Greek just means messenger. So here, this special um, divine visitation occurs. And he says to her, to Hagar, Sarah's maid, verse 8, where have you come from and where are you going? It's not that he doesn't know, but his questions are remedial. He wants her to open her heart. And she says, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Just as Adam and Eve uh, in their broken uh, fallenness, God pursued them. So he pursues Hagar in her brokenness and rejection. Where can I go from your spirit, Lord? Where can I go that you're not there? If I go you know, to the depth of the sea or the heights of the, the stars, wherever I go, there you will locate me and find me. Incredible. Where are you today? Running from God? trying to pursue him? Well, God is a seeker of the lost, and this is the beauty of this story. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return, notice his request, this is hard. He says, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Now, when you meet the angel of the Lord, when you meet Jesus and, and you've had an encounter with the Lord and, and you can't mistake it and it's the Lord, words that you'd like to hear don't always come out. He sometimes says words like this to you, return and submit. You're like, what? <laughs> Anybody else out there? <laughs> return and submit. She's traveled a while now. She's getting close to the border of her own home country. <laughs> Can you repeat that? <laughs> return and submit. When we've made a wrong decision, Sometimes that's what we've got to do. We've got to go back where it went wrong and try to make it right again. You see, some of the responsibility was on Hagar. And after this, Hagar's circumstances may not have changed, but she would be different. And after you meet the Lord Jesus, your circumstances don't always change, but you change. And he might say to you, return and submit. I'll give you the power. I'll give you the strength. I'll give you the perspective Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants, literally your seed, verse 10, so that they shall uh, be, be too many to count. Very similar promise as what was given to Abram. In fact, Hagar is the only matriarch, the only woman to receive such a promise. This places her alone among the matriarchs. This is it. This is the only place. You know, it's given to Abram and Isaac and Jacob, but she alone, Hagar, is given this promise as a woman. Wow. Talk about a turnaround. Talk about an unexpected divine blessing in the wake of a mess. Have you ever been there before? You're like, God, there's no way you can fix this. I'm just, I'm going back, my tail between my legs, back to Egypt, back to those gods. I'll try them again. And God meets you right there and says, guess what? You're going to have so many descendants. There'll be too many to count. I'm sure Hagar had to be overwhelmed I'm sure she wondered if she counted in the eyes of heaven. And the angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael. You see, it's the Lord that gives the name to the child, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. His name Ishmael means God hears. It's a combination of the, the Hebrew word for God, which is El, 
And the Hebrew word for hear, which is Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You put it together and you get the idea of Ishmael, God hears. And God named the child because God had heard or given heed to her affliction. And as she was traveling, this is my take on things. As she was heading south to Egypt, I think it was something like this. God, if you're real. God, if the God of Israel, if the God of Abram does exist, God, you know what's going on. You've seen my affliction. You know I'm pregnant. You know I've been kicked out. I don't know what to expect. I have nothing. I have no one to depend on. I have no one to take care of this child and no one to take care of me. And all of a sudden, who shows up? God. And he says, name the child. I hear. I know what's going on in your life. But notice, he will be a wild donkey of a man. (laughs) You're going to get some truth about this kid. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. And if you do a little research on this wild donkey of a man, first of all, the wild donkey is a desert animal that looks more like a horse than a donkey. It's used in the Old Testament as a figure of an individualistic lifestyle, uh, someone who's unconcerned about social convention. And the long history points to the Arab peoples, that the Arab races, which do exist today, and by the way, if you go back to this story, the Jewish people from Abram and Sarai and the Arab people from the line of Ishmael have been in conflict ever since. And this is the birth of the Arab peoples, and they have populated most of the Middle East now. And there's been a constant Arab-Israeli conflict that you can hear a lot about. And it goes all the way back to Sarai and Abram trying to help God out. And what you get is Ishmael. Now, that doesn't mean there wasn't blessings. That doesn't mean that God didn't turn it around for good, as he often does. And she responds. Hagar called the name. See the, in verse 13, the name is Shem in Hebrew, which is interesting because that's the line. And in the ancient picture language, the name Shem means him who destroys chaos. The Jews would not pronounce the name of God as their history unfolded, so they just simply called him the name they wouldn't, sometimes if you get correspondence from a Jewish person, they will put G-D. They won't put the vowel there because it's too holy for them to say. And often they'll just call him the name, Shem. And if you look at the Hebrew picture language, the letters mean the one who destroys chaos. Isn't that awesome? He's the God who destroyed Hagar's chaos and he can destroy yours as well. And she said, you are, she called the name of the Lord, Yahweh, who spoke to her, she said, thou art a God who sees. She called him El Ra'ah, for she said, I have remained alive here after seeing him. If you have an ESV, so she called the name of the Lord, on the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing, for she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. He hears Ishmael, he sees me. He knows my name. He knows my face. There's a great scene in Lord of the Rings. I think it's the final uh, of the three. And the king that's been brought back from some sort of possession is out and he's been fighting the battles. 
And he has fallen under this animal and he's crushed and he's dying. And his daughter comes to him and uh, she pulls off, you know, she's got a helmet on, she pulls it off and he's in his dying moments and he looks at her and says to her, I know your face. And there's a beautiful moment between the father who's dying and the daughter. And here's what I would say to you tonight. God knows your face. He knows your name. He knows your circumstances. He hears your cries. He knows when you're running away. He knows what problems you have. He knows how you've been ridiculed and beat up. And above all, he sees what you can become. He sees your identity in Jesus Christ. We are so hard on ourselves. And often we are hard on other people. And God says, I see you. I see what you will be. I see you conformed into my image. Don't lose heart. I am the God who sees. I am the God who hears. I see you. What a beautiful moment. And so... She named, she, as far as my knowledge of the Bible, she's the only human being, male or female, that ever confers a name upon God in the Old Testament. A couple of major things in Hagar's life, would you not agree? She gets this incredible promise, and then she confers a name upon the Lord, the God who sees. And therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bared, so the well was named New Living Translation Be'er Lahai Roy, which means well of the living one who sees me. It can still be found between Kadesh and Bared. That's the New Living Translation. So the well was named in honor of this great meeting between the Holy One and between um, Hagar. Notice she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Remember how I've been telling you that scholars believe the angel of the Lord is God? Well, would you notice verse 13? She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Thou art a God who sees. Do you see? The angel of the Lord is much more than an angel. He is a divine visitation. Perhaps Christ himself, which many believe. And so Hagar bore Abram a son. She went back. I'm sure it was hard. I don't know what the initial meeting at the door was like when she rang the bell <laughs> of the tent. Hello, uh, I'm back. Can we talk? Ever had a meeting like that? The Lord uh, met me at a well uh, down near the border. And uh, well, I'm sorry for strutting around, uh, making fun of you. And maybe there was a beautiful time of repentance and Grown-ups trying to be grown-ups. You know what I'm saying? Because they had to go on together for much more than a decade after this, and I'm sure they had to figure some things out. And maybe Abram took some responsibility and said, I'm sorry, ladies, it's my fault. Mary, maybe Sarai said, I'm sorry, in my desperation to be you know, someone who could provide for my husband, I made this grievous error. And then I made it worse. I compounded it by treating you harshly when you didn't deserve it. And maybe there was a beautiful time of restoration. Maybe that's what some of you need tonight. It's hard. Return and submit is a hard command. 
But Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, so they're back together as an interesting family, whom Hagar bore. He followed the, the account of the visitation that Hagar most certainly shared. He named the child Ishmael, God hears. And Abram was 86 years old when, he, when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. And the beautiful picture of this angel of the Lord at the well, I leave you with this. Uh, much later in your Bible, Jesus Christ has appeared physically and he has to go through Samaria. And he meets another woman at a well. And it is interesting that that woman has had five husbands. She's now living with a man who's not her husband. And Jesus said, if you knew who it was who asked you for a drink, you would have asked of him. And he would have given you what? Living water. And so there's an exchange between the incarnate son of God, Messiah, and this desperate, broken, rejected woman at another well, at Jacob's well. And Jesus tells her about living water and spiritual things. And she's shocked by his insights and all that he knows. And she begins to go throughout the town. And she says, come, come and see a man, if I can paraphrase, who sees me. Come and see a man who knows everything I have ever done. Come see a man who's unlike any other you will meet. The angel of the Lord. Amen. Jesus Christ, Messiah, God who sees. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this beautiful account in the book of Genesis. Thank you for the honesty of the story. The Bible's not hiding Warts and all, they're here. Poor decisions, pride, selfishness, lack of faith. It's all here. <laughs> That's why we can relate to it so well. For us, Lord, make us people of faith. Help us to learn from our mistakes, our moments when we make decisions because of desperation or tragedy or whatever it is and we make poor ones and and even then it seems like you're so faithful to intervene and you're the God who sees the God who hears you knew what was going on in that tent but you had every intention to still fulfill your promise through Abram and Sarai and give them a son whose name would be laughter joy oh God turn our sorrow into joy when we make poor decisions, would you turn them around for good? Would you pour out your living waters on that saint who can totally relate to the story tonight? Just needs to know you see them and you hear and you know their trouble and you will put salve on their wounds and you will pour living water into their dry places tonight. Saint, if you're here tonight and this is what you need, just extend your hand up to him Lift up your heart. Just say, Lord, you've met me here tonight. I receive all you have for me. This is for me. Make it your own. If you're a non-Christian here tonight, you know, he, he still sees you. He's a pursuer of the lost, but you must have that experience where you open your heart to him. Say, Lord, I believe you died on the cross. Pray it right now. I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe you rose from the dead. I believe you came to save me and meet me in all the broken places, 
Maybe you need to rededicate your life tonight and, and you just need to say, God, since you're the God that sees and hears, you know what I've been through and yet you don't despise me, you, don't, you won't push me out. No, he will accept you if you will simply repent and receive the finished work of the son. He came because he loves you. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. We just want to bow afresh to your lordship in our lives. Just let your living waters just flow out to this beautiful group of people. Let them leave here encouraged, strengthened, refreshed. For some, maybe even born again. And for some, rededicated to your purpose for their lives. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen.